to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And it's always great to hear the Word of God, but even better to hear it and then to read it with your own eyes. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Next to his son and the Holy Spirit, I don't know that's a greater gift that a person can have than the very Word of God, a Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about those things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, just as we've sung, which is translated, God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much. Every day is a great day with you, a gift, a blessing. Really thank you, Lord, that in our culture and our society, really all around the world, Christmas is being celebrated. And we thank you so much for our Savior today, Lord. We thank you so much for the sacrifice that was involved, providing him to us, for the love of your Father's heart for each one of us and our souls that is behind that salvation that you've offered to us in him. We just give you praise. We give you thanks. Even as Pastor Matt has prayed, we think about how many things we walk in life now as a Christian that we are freed from, that are the glory of our lives, the forgiveness of sins, Lord, the confidence of heaven, fellowship and intimacy with you. We're never alone, Lord. You always understand. We are so rich, and we praise you, Lord, for how rich you have made us in your Son, in Christ Jesus. And we give you praise in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't know that everybody goes through or every pastor goes through what I go through every Christmas season, but I bet there's a few of them that do. I've been pastoring for almost 30 years. And so sometimes when 
you come to the special holidays like Christmas and Easter, and, you know, by the time you've been in this calling for 30 years, you've, uh, you've looked at Christmas every which way you can from the Scriptures. And so every Christmas season, I come and I say, all right, Lord, where do you want us to go related to just speaking? What are you going to say amen to by your Holy Spirit? What do people need to hear? Or what does just one person need to hear? And I'll be happy to deliver the message. And so I reread all of the passages once again. Lord, what do you want to speak? What do you want to communicate? And I find myself drawn every single year. I'm sick. I'm to be pitied, really. I'm incurable. Every year, I'm drawn to the same word, Savior. And the accompanying words, save and salvation, when I read the passage. And I think to myself, the Christmas passages, and I think to myself, if I were to walk into a Christian church at Christmas time and say, all right, I'll give a listen to what is this season all about, right from the horse's mouth. I mean, nobody ought to know more about it than they do. I was to walk into this room, what in the world would I speak to them, given one chance? And my heart always turns to that word Savior. And so this morning I might leave the 99 to go after the one, but I'm happy to do it. And in this passage that we have read, Christmas is a celebration of the birth of a Savior, a Savior come into the world to save us from our sins. And Christmas is a celebration. When you think about that passage that Pastor Matt read to us earlier at the beginning of the service and how excited God the Father was and is, that heaven was, glory to God in the highest, peace, goodwill toward men, talks about good news, great tidings, glad tidings of great joy being provided to us. And Christmas time is a great celebration of His Savior sent into the world in order to save those who are in need of saving. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of a Savior, not the birth of a lawyer, the birth of a politician, a great military leader, a philosopher, a scientist, or an entertainer, or an athlete. It is a celebration of the birth of a Savior. And when God looks at mankind, when He looks at you and I individually, He recognizes our greatest need in life. There will not be more entertainment or an entertainer or some master politician or world leader to lead us out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves in. When He looks at you and I this morning, our individual lives, and He looks at the greatest need of the whole world all at once, He concludes that their greatest need is for a Savior. You think about that. 
Think about God looking at you personally from the absolute purity and clarity of heaven, from the perfection and the clarity of His own nature and ability to look at things exactly as they are. And when He looks at you and I, He declares that our greatest need is for a Savior. And you might just whisper that to yourself, God knows me to need a Savior. Now that term Savior is an interesting one. I like the strength of the word. He sent a Savior into the world. We think of the strength of the word that's used elsewhere in the Christmas story, the word save. And he uses the word Savior. He uses the word save. And his use of those words isn't accidental at all. And it isn't God being melodramatic or engaging in some kind of hyperbole when he uses the word Savior. The word expresses and is intended to express danger and urgency. We can use the words save and Savior over a long period of time. We can even hear them over and over again, year in and year out. And then one day something happens and the words uh, lose their impact related to our lives. But they're never intended to. Those words, the words Savior and salvation and save should produce images of a drowning man or a man or a woman caught in a burning building or a burning automobile. And they are in need of saving. They're not in need of a speech or a tap dance or a little direction in life, maybe a little helping hand. They're in need of saving. And so when God sends a Savior into the world, it must mean that each and every one of us is in some kind of danger, a great danger, a life-threatening danger that we need to be saved from. So that raises the question, what do I need to be saved from? And thankfully, we don't have to, you know, form committees and try and come up with the answer to that on our own. The passage plainly declares what it is that we need to be saved from in verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus was born into the world in order to save us from our sins. Well, that raises another question in our mind, doesn't it? And the question it raises in our mind is, what in the world is this thing called sin. And in my experience, I can be wrong, but I have broad experience in this area. In my experience, I think that most people think that the word sin refers to some kind of extraordinary wrongdoing, not to you or me. But it's a term that's reserved not for the average person in the world, but for the extraordinarily evil person. That the sinner is, is someone that we would attach that term to like a bank robber or axe murderer or someone like that, but not to the average human being. That's a word that's for the extraordinary wrongdoer. But God defines sin in a very different way than that. 
To sin, according to the Bible, is to simply miss the mark. It is to aim at a bullseye. Our English word sin uh, comes from the Greek word harmatia, and our English word sin comes from that very word that means to miss the mark. And in our mind, it is to produce the image of an archer out in a field. There is the target and the distance, and there is the whole circles on circle inside of a circle and so forth, and you've got the bullseye. He takes out his bow, he takes out his arrow, he aims at the bullseye, and if he misses the bullseye, he misses the mark, then he has sinned. And there is no allowance for effort or good intention. He may, be del- he may deliberately miss the bullseye on purpose, and he sins. He may try with all of his might to hit the bullseye, miss the bullseye. He has still missed the mark. He has still sinned. And that's the definition of sin. It is simply to be less than perfect. Oh, now that's a considerably broader definition than most people think of when they think of sin. But the Bible teaches that every one of us is a sinner. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, chapter 3, he said, For all have sinned. There's a consequence to sin. And he goes on to say what that consequence is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the life that God intended for us to live. And that same chapter in the book of Romans Paul wrote, and he says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. None righteous. Not when perfection is the standard. Because perfection exposes all of us to be unrighteous and to be sinners. And each of us have sinned in our lives. Each of us have been less than perfect in our thoughts, in our words, in our uh, doings, our actions, in our motives, and even failing to do good when good ought to have been done and we looked across the street and went in the other direction. That's sin as well. That's to fall short of perfection. I don't think there's any need. Sometimes people are, they're offended. Talk to them about being sinners. Who do you think you are to call me a sinner? But when we stop and we realize how God defines sin and how important it is that it be properly defined, then there really isn't any cause for offense. When we realize there's only one definition of sin that really matters, not what man's definition is or your definition or my definition is. All that matters is what is God's definition of sin. And when we realize that sin means that I have been less than perfect, then we realize, listen, there's nothing to be offended by related to that term. It's just God being honest with us. Well, someone might ask, why do we need to be saved from our sins? I mean, why can't God just ignore them and accept us the way that we are? That's kind of a prevailing attitude today. And the reason is, Because in the words of an old Puritan, and I love this quote, 
he wrote, the righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. There'll be a test at the end of the sermon on what he just said. But what he has said is amazing. And the translation is essentially this, that God cannot lower the standard of perfection as a requirement for being able to enter into heaven and still remain a righteous God. He can't do it. Perfection has to be the standard. If he overlooks sin, if he doesn't address sin, if he says sin is nothing, don't worry about it, then he isn't a holy God and he isn't a righteous God. And if God isn't holy and God isn't righteous, then there is no holiness and righteousness in the universe. And we're all in more trouble than we can believe. God faced a very significant problem and a significant dilemma in his desire to save sinners. The problem that he faced is that the righteousness or the rightness or the right onness that's required in order to enter into heaven is perfection. The problem with that is that man is less than perfect, he is unrighteous, we are sinners, and thus we are disqualified from ever getting into heaven based upon our own works, our own human effort, our own merits. Again, as Paul wrote to the Romans, for all have sinned and have the consequence and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin has separated us from the very thing that we were created for, and that is a relationship with God. And that's why until a person is engaged in that relationship, they always have that sense that there must be something more to life. And so they move from one hobby to the next hobby, to the next hobby, to the next interest, to the next job, to the next girlfriend, to the next boyfriend, to the next wife, to the next husband. And they're always on the move looking for that relationship, that thing, that accomplishment, that um, amount of money or acquisition that will then silence this sense that there must be something more to life, the emptiness that's in the human heart. Sometimes people say, well, why is there this emptiness within our hearts, that sense that there must be something more to life before we come to know Christ? And the reason that we feel it is that before we come to know Christ, there's an emptiness in our life. We've been created for a relationship with God, and we will never be fully satisfied until we're engaged in the one thing that we've been created for, and that is relationship with God. But God's problem is that as much as God loves man, as much as he longs to have a personal relationship with us, one day to bring us into the very glory of heaven, he cannot ignore the seriousness of sin, the very real consequences of sin. Again, he would be unrighteous if he did that. So that's his dilemma. Is there a solution to his dilemma? How does he get sinful man 
into the perfection of heaven when perfection is what is required in order to enter into heaven. That's a problem. Is there a solution to that problem? Again, yes, there is, but there's only one solution, and he was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary because it is there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness or rightness or right-onness, which is perfect, to be put to our account. And when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible says that this wonderful accounting occurs, this wonderful transaction occurs where my unrighteousness is taken away, my sin is forgiven, and the very perfect righteousness, right on this rightness of Christ is put to my account so that when God then looks at us for the rest of our lives and for the rest of eternity is all that he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And because he's provided for that righteousness to be put to our account, giving us the perfect righteousness that heaven requires, and yet at the same time not dismissing or ignoring the seriousness of sin, no one can look at the cross of Calvary and Jesus upon that cross and ever say, God isn't serious about sin. And it's only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death upon the cross that allows God to remain just and holy and still be the justifier of sinful man. It is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly righteous and holy God to save sinners and to remain just in doing so. It is only Jesus and his sacrifice on that cross that makes it consistent for God to pardon us. Only Jesus provides us with the righteous requirement for into heaven, to get into heaven. It is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the righteous wrath of God toward our sin and God's wrath toward our sin is real. He couldn't be a holy God if he was indifferent to sin. What our world has lost today may be the biggest thing that I've seen it lose in my lifetime is the consciousness of the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God. And we have lost it to our peril. It is why the world is going in the direction that it's going in, the wrong direction. And it is going there in an ever increasing speed and rapidity. I would contend that the two greatest things that keep people in our culture from receiving God's gift of salvation from the consequences of sin 
by putting their faith in Jesus as their personal Savior is, number one, the failure to accept God's definition of sin and to recognize that the standard is perfection. This is not being graded on a class curve. That sin is anything short of perfection. And once I redefine sin as something else, then now I'm no longer confronted with my need for a Savior. Because if sin is no big deal, then what do I need a Savior for? And the second thing, in addition to a failure to understand the seriousness, or to accept rather, that I'm a sinner by heaven's definition, the second, and I think it's the larger of the two, is an unwillingness to take the seriousness of sin seriously. There's that great tendency today to view sin as no big deal. I run into very few people who when I will speak to them about God's definition of sin, what's required in order to get into heaven, and once they understand God's definition of sin, they, that they won't admit that they are a sinner, that they are less than perfect. The far harder thing to get people to do is to view their sinful condition as serious, to take seriously the, the seriousness of sin, to take it as seriously as God takes it. People just figure, well, everybody is a sinner, and nobody seems to be making a big deal out of it, and so it has to be okay. And again, we grade it on a class curve. I'm no better or worse than anybody else in the small. I'm no better or worse than anybody else who lives in this apartment complex or in this neighborhood or goes to this school or works in this workplace. We compare ourselves among ourselves, the Bible says. The Bible says that it's not wise because no other human being is the standard for righteousness. Jesus is the standard for righteousness, and thus perfection is the standard. And so people feel that sin must not be a very big deal, but that's to fail to realize that God is real, that God exists in this universe, that He exists in this world that it isn't just us in this world comparing ourselves among ourselves. We're going to hijack the universe from God. He created it. And so we act as if God doesn't exist. We act as if God's definitions are meaningless or they're irrelevant or we can replace them as we like. And then one of the first casualties, of course, is going to be looking at sin as being serious at all. But God thinks that sin is a really big deal. And He thinks it's so big that He sent His Son into the world to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for the forgiveness of our sins. And sin is such a big deal that if a person rejects that Savior and that salvation, it will result in an eternal judgment for that sin. People squawk at that. It just takes one sin to separate me from the glory 
of heaven. It's not like anybody in the world has to like uh, deal with that as a personal problem. Nobody's dealing with one sin. We're all dealing with a lot of sins on a daily basis. But one sin is so serious that if it is not covered and washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus, then that one sin is worthy of eternal judgment. And there's nothing in between those two things, salvation found in Christ or an eternal judgment upon the sin that I did not allow him to wash away from my life. How in the world does a person receive God's gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins? The Bible teaches that we receive this salvation and this forgiveness by simply putting our trust or our faith in Jesus. That's it? Yeah. I mean, don't I have to, like, crawl on my hands and knees from Pellendale to five points? No. Don't I have to climb the Himalayas or something like that in a T-shirt and a pair of shorts in the winter? No. No, no, I don't have to do any of those things. We receive the salvation as a gift from God by putting our faith in His Son. If God made it more complicated than making salvation a gift, then it'd no longer be a gift. It'd be based on some effort of yours and mine. But salvation is an absolute free gift from God. You take Jesus' word for it. One day a group of religious leaders came up to him and they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And they got their pens out and their pad of paper and they're ready. Okay, knock them out. Give me the ten things that I need to do or the twenty or the five or whatever it might be that we might do the works of God to make ourselves pleasing to God. I'm expecting a lengthy sermon by Jesus. And Jesus answered and he said to them, this is the work of God. Pens are poised that you believe in him whom he sent. That's all. That is the greatest thing an individual human being can do to honor God and to bless the heart of God is to put our faith and our trust in his Son and his Savior that he sent into the world. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he said, for by grace, grace is a gift word, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And when a person puts their faith in Jesus, again, that righteousness that we could never earn on our own is put to our account, His righteousness, His perfect rightness. And now we've been properly prepared for heaven. Now we've allowed God to save us in the only way that He can and remain just in doing so. And when we put our trust in Jesus, then we have the forgiveness of our sins past, we're given the power to live a different kind of life today and every day between here and heaven. And then after this life, we have the confidence of one day being in heaven itself. 
Now, someone might wonder, why is Jesus alone able to offer man salvation, this kind of salvation? What makes him unique in all of human history? Why is he able to do this kind of thing for me? The reason that he's able to do it is because he's uniquely qualified to as the Son of God and God the Son, as Emmanuel, verse 23, as God with us, as divine. Sometimes people will struggle a little bit over the necessity to recognize Jesus as divine, as God in human flesh, and in order to be forgiven of our sins. And so they wonder something. They say, isn't it enough that I believe in him to be a good person, to have been a great teacher, a great prophet, a great example in human history? And the answer is no, because if that was all that he was, then our sin problem would remain unresolved. Because one who is merely a good person or a great teacher or a great example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It is because Jesus is divine that he is also sinless, and the sinlessness of Jesus is essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot be the Savior of sinners. He would need a Savior himself, just as a drowning person cannot save another drowning person. It was Jesus' sinlessness that qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, as Peter wrote in his first epistle, to be the lamb without blemish and without spot. Some people, they don't like Jesus' claim to deity. Maybe that's you. You've rejected him, accepted him on many levels, but rejected his deity. Why must I believe in the fact that he is the Son of God and God himself? And so they reject him on that basis. But if you take that away, you take away his deity, then you take away his sinlessness, and then you are left with a Savior who can't save anyone. And I think it's a great mistake for people to try and tinker with Jesus. He's just perfect as He is. God knew exactly who He was sending into the world in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. There's no mistake in Him at all. And it's best that we don't redefine Him. We don't know enough to do that. Now, God has provided this gift of salvation to every person in this world and every person that's sitting in this room. But what in the world, what good is a gift that is given to us? Even if that gift is given to us by God, what good does any gift do for us unless that gift is opened, unless it's received? How tragic that a single person would fail to open this gift of salvation and forgiveness and everlasting life. I tell you, no child would leave a gift unopened. (laughs) Not at Christmas time, not at any time. You've witnessed it for years and years, you've done it. They don't rest. 
until everything has been opened under the tree or at the Christmas party or whatever it, it might be. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will be by no means enter it. To refuse a gift from someone who has purchased that gift for you at great expense to themselves and then delivered it to you personally, so personally, is to do three things at once to that person. It is to offend them, it is then to humiliate them, and it is also to wound their heart. I'll tell you, I would never want to humiliate my Creator. I would never want to humiliate or wound the heart of a God that loved me and loves us so much that He sent His Son into the world in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. I think it's important to realize how excited heaven was and is and how excited God the Father was and is to provide us with salvation. Again, I refer back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And there are those shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their sheep. And then the angel of the Lord is before them and gives them great tidings, glad tidings of great joy. And then after he speaks to them, this entire angelic host is then revealed to them, and the excitement of heaven is be being communicated to them in song. And all of it was an expression of the Father's heart toward mankind. When He provided the Savior for you and me, He thought He was doing a really good thing. He's excited about it. When He thinks about your salvation, my salvation, He's excited about that. When He thinks about you and I having the potential to receive that salvation into our lives, to know that we're forgiven, to know that we'll one day be in heaven, to be able to experience a relationship with God. Now, all of that excited his heart. That's the heart of the giver. That's what he brings to the whole thing. And then whether he's able to maintain that heart that excitement to each one of us individually depends on what we do with the gift and how we handle the gift. And so many people refuse the gift and they don't realize what they are doing to the heart of God in doing so. And how they break the Father's heart and now forcing Him to judge their sins rather than to forgive their sins. I think of the materialistic man 
the world today, the secular man, the self-made man. Maybe that's you this morning. Everything you've touched in life turns to gold. I've known people like that. And so often that kind of man or woman, they can't see their need for a savior. I mean, after all, life has been good to them. They excel in the material world. All of their life is spent building barns, filling them, then tearing down those barns and building bigger barns. What does that kind of person need of talk of salvation and forgiveness and eternity? Life is so rich, it's so full now, he can't see his need. But Jesus speaks and declared to such a person and said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And Jesus declares, perhaps to one or two or five of us here this morning that are in that place, Jesus declares that if you gain the entire world at the expense of the neglect of your soul, at the expense of losing your soul, you will have made a terrible, unspeakably terrible bargain in life and decision in life. And I think it's fascinating how many of us, when we became Christians, we look back and we realize that God knew the value of our soul long before we ever knew the value of our soul. Your soul, Jesus is saying, is more valuable than all of the world put together. And he attempts to waken up this kind of person to that great fa fa fact, a person who will spend decades and decades and decades of their life poured solely into the material of life and prosper as a result of it and never, not for one hour in their life, open a Bible and read it or get on their knees and say, God, if you are real, then I am missing everything in life, though I have gained everything in life by man's definition. If you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? And no man who does not give time to that kind of an honest seeking after God knows the value of their soul because God will always take that man or woman and bring them right to the feet of Jesus. He may do it a thousand different ways, but he will do it so that that person might be saved. I think of the religious man today and how often he can't see his need for a Savior. But it was to a religious man that Jesus declared, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
It was to that same religious man that Jesus uttered his most famous words in all of the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he spoke those words to a very religious man, a man by the name of Nicodemus, a good man, a righteous man in comparison to other human beings. Everybody looked at Nicodemus and said, if anybody is getting to, to heaven on the basis of a good life, Nicodemus is on his way to heaven. I mean, that guy is going to get there. And yet Jesus declared to that very religious man that he couldn't earn his way into heaven by way of religion or the keeping of religious practices, but that he needed to be born again. That he needed to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins as much as any pagan would. There are more people who will enter into a Christless eternity from the roads of religion Christless religion than will ever enter into a Christless eternity from the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is a very religious world, and it was a very religious world that Jesus spoke to. And it's interesting, he was so clear with religious people because he knew what he had to say to break through that false sense of security that a religious person can have, and they never sense their need for a Savior because of their history in this religion. I am of this or I am of that. And Jesus says, don't miss heaven because of your religion. The question is, are you born again? I don't care what religion you're in right now. There's one particular group that I think of. I speak to them all of the time. I said, do you know Jesus? Well, I'm of this, they tell me. I asked them, are you born again? Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Are you born again? That's the issue. I'm not going to fight with them over some title or some institution that they're a part of. Are you born again? If you're born again, God will take care of everything else. All I care about is that you're born again. And so there might be some among us here today, deeply religious, but you've never been born again, never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then I think of the indifferent man, and he lives his life oblivious to his need for a Savior. And I think that's the majority of the people that are all around us every day in the United States of America indifferent to the seriousness of sin, indifferent to their need for a Savior. Who cares? What's the next movie that's coming out? Do I have enough money to go out to eat? What's the next vacation? What's the next thing I want to buy? And they're completely indifferent to God and the things of God. There's such a person Jesus declared Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those were the first words of Jesus' public ministry. Stop and think. Repent means have a change of mind that produces a change of direction in life. 
And that word repent was intended to capture the attention of the indifferent person, the person who thinks that none of this matters when God knows that it is all that really matters. God really loves you, and He loves me. He really loves the world. He loves us. We are His creation. He really, really does. And out of that love, He has provided us with the gift that meets our greatest need in life, a Savior. But now it is our responsibility then to receive that gift. The Bible says, but unto as many as received Him, that is Jesus, to them He, the Father, gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. The importance of doing that this morning. That is the true meaning of Christmas. It is all about a Savior come into the world to save us from our sins. Everyone has a right to know, and now you know. Let's pray together. And if the worship team had come forward, that would be great. That's God's message to each of us today concerning Christmas, the birth of His Son. God the Father is so excited about His Son. He is ex so excited. about the wisdom and the power and the perfection and the beauty behind the way that He has chosen to save sinful man. He is so excited about the potential that you have right now in your hands to be able to choose His Son today to put your faith in Him and to receive the forgiveness of sins and the power to live a life now like Christ between now and heaven and then one day to be in heaven itself. He is excited and eager to bless every single one of us with all of that and more. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And if you'd like to do that, just simply stand.